Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled into a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb, and as she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God for the world. After 36 years of pastoral ministry, Preaching on Easter Sunday is a first for me. And it's really not a first I welcome. I've often wanted to be in a Quaker meeting on Easter Sunday. (laughs) Because I'm convinced that silence is the most appropriate response to the intense resurrection mystery that we celebrate today. In my experience, most attempts to sermonize, theologize, memorialize, and spiritualize this event fall short. And that usually what is lacking is a clear sense of the real experience of the first disciples and what that experience might be like for those of us trying to wrap our minds around it now. I don't want to explain the unexplainable or engage in debates over atonement theories or any of that. I want us to focus on the experience recorded in John's Gospel. Give space to the mystery that we have only finite words to describe. And reflect on what we find when we pay attention to these descriptions. My prayer is that something I say will spark an imaginative reflection about what resurrection means for you and how it affects your life. 
If that distracts you from the sermon, go with it. You have my full permission. While in high school, I attended a youth retreat that concluded on Easter morning. After the Saturday night campfire where we ugly cried and felt all those feels that go along with campfires on the last night of youth retreats, we fell into bed exhausted only to be awakened before dawn on Easter morning by the glorious strains of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus blaring and blasting from huge speakers the counselors had set up on the lawn after we went to bed. It was great. I will never forget that. I mean, I could go back there in a skinny minute. Jolted out of bed, we assembled on the lawn in our pajamas. When the music ended and the sun rose simultaneously, John 20 was acted out in front of us. Watching and listening... It dawned on me then that this passage begins while it was still dark. Jesus' resurrection isn't blared through loudspeakers in broad daylight, but occurs in a dark, quiet rush of fear, confusion, grief, and dawning recognition. John's resurrection moment is liminal space which occurs whenever a threshold is being crossed, night to day, one side of a stream to another, winter to spring, in or out of a doorway. The Celts call this reality a thin place where forever touches temporal, and divine reality touches human reality with very little separation. This symbolism of night crossing into day offers us a way to look at life and death where death becomes a part of life, a threshold into something new. We are encouraged by John to see death not as the dark period at the end of life's sentence, but as the semicolon it really is. In that mysterious pregnant pause as night turns to day, we are invited to affirm that death is not a final word, but a liminal threshold to more God mystery. This passage in John is a meditation on the various responses of the earliest disciples to Jesus' death. The four gospel writers do not agree as to what happened on that earliest Easter morning. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry to disavow you of that. But in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene is the central figure around which the story revolves. She's the one who goes while it's dark and discovers the stone moved. She runs to tell Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Most scholars tend to believe that this is John talking about himself, so that's what I'll call him. Upon hearing Mary's report, Peter and John take off for the tomb. John arrives first looks inside, sees the burial clothes without a body, and stops. Peter rushes on past him, enters, looks around the claws lying about, and then John joins him. And the gospel says that he saw and believed. Does he believe that Jesus is raised? Or does he now believe that what Mary reported is true? 
Or some 60 to 70 years later, as this story is actually being recorded, has this event become so real to the community of faith that its power cannot be denied, that their eyes are opened with the spiritual sight that Jesus' life and death has given them. Maybe there's some of all those things in that assertion of belief. But in the moment, the men in the story run in, look around, and run home. Right? There's no evidence of grief, much less belief or understanding. There is no sense of any personal experience of what they see at the tomb. We know they get the point later as the light of understanding continues to break through their fear and grief, but there is not much evidence in the moment. Mary reacts differently. She stays close to the tomb, letting her grief begin to run its course. She weeps. She wonders. She looks in to see what there is to see. She shares her grief with those she encounters inside. And her need to know what has happened receives a response. In the darkness, eyes swimming and unfocused, you know how you get when you cry? She does not recognize the one who addresses her until he calls her name. But in that moment of being known, her eyes are opened. Her tears are dried, and her heart responds with recognition. Henri Nouwen says, when heart speaks to heart, it's a gift of God. I've said that before. I want you to remember that. That's what happens in this moment, I do believe. Instead of running from her grief, her need, her fear, her aching emptiness, she takes all of it to the tomb of the one for whom she grieves. And there... Divine heart speaks to human heart, intertwining as one in a mysterious gift of knowing and being known. Eyes open, tears dry, heart awakens, life perspective forever changes. Grief is not easy to assimilate. Loss overtakes us and our processing ability goes haywire. In the times of grief I've experienced, I've come to know that some faculties are diminished, but memory is heightened. As we grieve and remember, we grow more aware that the person we have lost lives on in and through our memories and experiences of them that can never be taken from us. The relationship continues past the loss, because our memories resurrect them, in a sense. You know as well as I do that relationships with people we lose do not end. They continue to shape us, to affect us for good or for ill, to guide and to leaven us. We can leave the mystery of bodily resurrection to professional theologians. For me... It is enough to know that death is not the final word and it has no final power. I can experience Jesus through the memories and reflections of those whose lives were changed by knowing him, walking with him, following him, sharing life with him. 
their memories of who he was, how he loved, how he died obedient to the end and what God he thought God was calling him to stand for and stand against. And their witness in word and faithful deed to the transforming life to which he called them is enough to convince me that he is not dead. He's risen. And he lives on in and through them. He lives in and through me too. To the extent that I allow myself to know him, to open my will to his by following him, and to be vulnerable to the transformation that his way offers to me. Father Greg Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries, a ministry to gang members in California, the story of which is chronicled in the book Tattoos on the Heart. In an interview, Boyle talks about how many young people he has buried as a result of gang violence. 193 at the time of the interview, the latest funeral occurring the day before this particular interview. Boyle is no stranger to grief and loss. Seeing his grief that day, the interviewer asks what breaks his heart apart and what breaks it open. And Boyle replies, is there a difference? I want to allow my heart to be broken by the very things that break open the heart of God. He goes on to say that death will topple you if you don't know three things. First, you must know how you would answer the question, what is more powerful than death? Second, you must know what is on your list of fates that are worse than death. To illustrate these things, he says, The knowledge that you are exactly what God had in mind when he made you is to know what is more powerful than death. And to not know what God had in mind when he made you is a fate worse than death. Jesus' resurrection response to Mary hammers this home because the fundamental thing we have to know as creatures made by God is that we are his beloved children known by our names, every hair on our heads numbered, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can spot those who know they're beloved. They don't hoard their belovedness. Instead, they share it because they recognize that every creation of God's is beloved. The third thing that Boyle says we need to do to keep death from toppling us is instead of focusing on living forever, we must live in the forever by staying absolutely anchored in the present moment, completely attentive to the person sitting beside you and the experience in which you find yourself. He says, when Christ in me recognizes Christ in you, And when you delight in that reality, you stay anchored in both the duties and the delights of the forever life. Kinship and connection happen, he says, 
And then transformation is possible. Jesus calls Mary's name, and she calls his. Fostering unmistakable kinship, connection, and space for transforming love to manifest itself in delight and relationship that death cannot touch. The instructions Jesus gives her after they establish this connection contain the duties of life in the forever. Look at what he tells her. First, don't cling to me. In Free For All, Artie said, I've never thought of Jesus as huggable. And Philip replied, we have difficulty turning loose of the physical. But there's something going on here beyond that. We so want that physical closeness that we can't see past that need to the spiritual closeness here. But the spiritual closeness is what's real and lasting. And Glenda said, we need to learn this. We can't hold on to a pastor, a spouse, anyone else. People leave us. Relationships end. People die. John is not reassuring. Philip said, that's because we're wrapped up in the physical realm. If they're gone, they're gone. And Glenda responded, yes, our expectations cause problems. If we're not living in an expectation of something beyond the physical, then we won't see or experience the richness that is beyond and beneath what we can see and touch. And then, Glenda referred to a story Anne Lamott recounts in her newest book, Hallelujah Anyway. If you're not familiar with Anne Lamott, um, you need to get familiar with Anne Lamott. She tells a story about an African village whose water supplies were gone and its well running dry. Global hunger activist Lynn Twist and her colleagues went to the village to see if they could help. Expecting to find hopeless, hungry, lethargic people in despair, they were welcomed instead by ecstatic children, women in beautiful tribal dresses, and men drumming and chanting. They were thin and dirty, but they were joyous and dancing in celebration at the help that had arrived. Over time, it became clear that the men focused solely on the problem were close to giving up hope. In contrast to their myopic paralysis, it was clear that the women seemed to know something the men had refused to acknowledge. The women believed there was an underground lake beneath the sand because they had seen it in their visions. The hunger team took the vision seriously and convinced the men to let the women begin digging. Lamotte said, in a culture of rigid patriarchal traditions, a huge shift like this often begins with desperation. And she calls desperation the gateway to grace. The women began digging with hands and small shovels. They dug deeper and deeper, prompting Lamotte to reflect that deep is so un-American now, even radical. We live too often like water skeeters. You know what they are? Water skeeters on the surface of a pond, dropping down for a quick bite of insect or email. 
Deep is the realm of the soul, she writes. After a year, the men stopped watching skeptically and began doing the chores and helping with the children while the women dug. A whole culture was being transformed as they looked past what was physically obvious, rearranged their expectations and their traditions, and did what was possible. They kept digging. Over a year later, they dug into an underground lake big enough to nourish the whole countryside. The ancient lake was there all along, but it took a different way of seeing to know this. Lamont concludes, a reality underneath all things means that beneath the floorboards, in the depths, in the spaces between pebbles or sandy floor, beyond the expectations that imprison our eyes and souls, is something that can't be destroyed, something we need when all seems lost. Jesus points Mary to this underneath reservoir when he tells her, don't cling to my physical presence. I'm going back to my true home where I will rejoin that which is underneath all things. Jesus' first instruction to Mary reminds her to resist clinging blindly to the things she can see. People, traditions, beliefs, prejudices, fears, griefs. And to put her trust in her relationship with him that time cannot bind, that undergirds all life, and he is seen best with the eyes of the soul. The second thing he tells her is, go tell them. What she knows and experiences in her renewed resurrection relationship with him must be shared. She must give witness to what she has experienced, for that is her story, something no one can deny or disavow. When we encounter the risen one, we must hear the instructions Mary heard. Don't cling to me, go tell them. When people look at our lives, what witness Do we give them? Do we judge and criticize unmercifully? Or do we live as if we follow the one who says, judge not lest you be judged? Do we give in to our greed or our need to be secure? Or do we give tangible witness to the one who says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Do we give in to anxiety and the fear of scarcity or do we show trust in the one who says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Be not afraid. Are we distracted and fretting over many things or do we choose the path of sitting at Jesus' feet to listen and learn? To whom do our lives give witness? Do they point to the resurrected one whose path is compassion, forgiveness, service, and welcome? We have a role to play in the transformation of the world. We have stories to share and witness to offer about our experiences of resurrection evident around us, if not accessible within us. Hello! In case you have not noticed, Winter has turned to spring. 
living proof that resurrection is the way of creation. Look at that. Six weeks ago, that wasn't there. It wasn't possible, right? It was dead out there. And hail was falling on my car. But I have a new one. The popular and powerful 70s youth musical Celebrate Life. Is anybody familiar with Celebrate Life? Did you sing it like I did? Could you sing it now this day? It closes with this garden scene between Jesus and Mary. The last thing Jesus says is, Mary, go. Tell them I'm alive. And she runs off to tell the others. The musical's staging dictates that the disciples run throughout the sanctuary shouting, He is alive. 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 You know it, Philip. Can you do it? He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. Come on, you got to get the rhythm. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. As they do this, the music builds to a crescendo that erupts in the Easter hymn. Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise, but Christ has opened paradise. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. That's the music of resurrection. Not that we live forever. Living forever is a cultural illusion, a dead end of lost expectations and shallow refusals to face the inevitable processes of life. Easter people live in the forever, soaring where he leads us, sharing the message that he is alive in and through us. We do this by knowing that relationships are more powerful than death. Memory and love make resurrection reality. We do this by knowing that there are fates worse than death. Clinging to our past, worshiping our traditions, elevating our cliches, and nursing our blind spots. All the while, refusing to claim our name as beloved We do this by refusing to let our grief and loss prevent us from seeing the depth of the life-giving water deep underneath life's surfaces, always present and waiting to be found when we need it. We do this by following the way of Jesus. Not an easy road, but a path that offers abundant life in the forever. Beloved, Don't cling to me. Go. Tell them I'm alive. Show them I'm alive. Living in you. So I ask you this Easter morning, what's holding us back from partnering with the resurrected Jesus who knows our name 
What's holding us back from partnering with the resurrected Jesus to restore life in the dead places in our world?